you know that your race is three weeks, three months down the line, right? You start having those responses as if you've just seen the saber-toothed tiger show up on the scene. And that doesn't work in endurance. So an endurance mindset where you are voluntarily choosing to put yourself in a situation that's going to be incredibly physically demanding, but you're doing so voluntarily, right? That requires a special set of skills that are learnable. And I'm really looking forward to us having a conversation about that part of the sport. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt, good to see you again. Today kind of represents uh, an ending, right, of of that first podcast series. Uh, I know we did a few different podcasts in the middle there, but generally speaking, we were focusing on what is run form, and we started with the big toe, and we've gone all the way up. I think the only thing in the head that represents the big toe might be uh, the nose, right? But basically, we've, we've got to the head now. And uh, initially, when we were planning this podcast, we were thinking, okay, the head is probably not not a huge amount of information. And then when I started preparing for the podcast, suddenly it became a lot of information, right? And so, you know, the head, like the heart, uh, represents much more than than the physical unit, right? And so I, I'm I'm looking forward to this this uh, chat with you. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of we've been talking a lot about joint by joint, and I like to say, okay, you have to have that mobility in your big toe, you have to have stability in your arch, mobility in your ankle, and we've talked about how that works all the way up the chain with all of these podcasts we've done. And I would always kind of joke around, though, especially with the kids that I was coaching in high school, talking about. When it comes to the mobility stability conversation, you move up the chain and you're finally talking about having that cervical mobility and then stability in the head. And and there I would, of course, point to the head and talk about stability as in mental game. Right? And uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I little shout out to um, a runner I was working with for several years in high school that I ran into in a race this last weekend, uh, literally ran in. And uh, she was she was great. She was talking about the performance partner conversations when she was in high school. We would have people pair up and they would work with each other as performance partners. But back then, I was still actually one of your students, really. I'd taken your course and read your book and I had asked you permission, can can I use magical running as a lesson plan, really? And that just took off. Of course, you being who you are, said, go for it. And I will say that that still is probably the best move that I made as a coach, working on mindset with those athletes. It's not a coincidence to me that Maddie was one of those core runners that really built up over about a three-year period. So by the time we got to our senior year at that group, we just we just had magical running. We really, really did. It was amazing. We, we went to um, what's called the New Balance Invitational. Uh, it was a qualifier meet, actually, and um, the entire team that I had at the time was able to go. They all qualified to go to that Invitational and Without exaggeration, every runner had at least one PR that race. And I do believe in a higher pressure situation like that, where it's a national qualifier, without having magical running behind us and building on that for not just weeks, but actually years at that point, um, we had fun out there. We were just, we were just knocking it out of the park and the momentum just carried the first race, I remember that first race, I was probably the most nervous <laughs> and watching those kids, knowing how much work it put in, watching them toe that line, saying, oh, please, please let, let them be the best versions of themselves today. But I didn't have to worry. I mean, they were just on it. And when it was time to go, they, they went, no hesitation, you know, and it's, 
it, it was it was just exceptional experience. So, um, you know, I'm going off on a little tangent. I get emotional with this stuff, but way back then is when I really started to appreciate your coaching so much more than the, you know the the physiology behind it. Even though I know that's where you're a master, I also knew that there was a reason why you had so many athletes perform at such a high level at Olympic and World Games. And it wasn't a coincidence that those athletes kept showing up. So I'll let you, let you take it from there a little bit, but I thought it'd be fun to just talk a little bit of the mindset with the head today first before we get into the physical. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100% there, Matt. And and it's definitely an area for, for a multiple number of podcasts, right? Uh, you know, from starting off with, you know, being able to practice as a sports psychologist requires a PhD, right? So those guys are, are well, well trained and, and really, uh, really smart individuals. Uh, but the access, you know, uh, starting off working for, you know, for Team USA, uh, first with, with track athletes and then, uh, and then uh, triathletes, it, it occurred to me that, that federations struggle to provide that that mental support, the head the head support, right? And so it's up to the individuals, and of course the people on the forefront are the coaches. But if you look at the syllabus and the the coaching, the formalized coaching training that individuals receive, uh, you know, if you look at the sports psychology degree versus versus coach education for coaching track and field or coaching triathlon, you know, it's really hard to get into those true nuts and bolts, and it's very individualized. And like massage used to be in the 60s and the 70s, only the cyclists used it. Now, you know, you, you thought, you know, when I was in high school or when I was starting off coaching, you thought, you know, a person either has it mentally or they don't, right? And very few of them have it mentally, and 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 uh, the rest of us are head cases, right? But but the truth be told, mental skills are learnable, just like strength is a you know, everybody has the ability to acquire strength and everybody has the ability to acquire skill, right? Uh, and and so I'm looking really, really forward to getting into that. I mean, even recently in in, in my uh, career as, as being somebody who's a mental performance coach as well, um, is this concept that the highest level that you can get to is not being the toughest guy on the race course, right? We used to believe that for a long time. Now I believe there's a level above that, and that's that ability to strive. You know, I love the Zulu word atleha, which means thrive, and and I I like that that kind of you know it sounds like athlete, it sounds like athletic. You know, atleha, thrive, and so that's that's where I'm going now. So that you know, the next chapter in magical running would be that, and then the connection, right? Because how our brains are put together. Uh, in terms of how we were supposed to cope as as beings on a level out there with saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and, and trying to feed ourselves and protect ourselves, right? Our brains were prepared to do that kind of thing. And, you know, I'll also end with this on this brain conversation, right? That if you know that your race is three weeks, three months down the line, right? You start having those responses as if you've just seen the saber-toothed tiger show up on the scene and that doesn't work in endurance so an endurance mindset where you are voluntarily choosing to put yourself in a in a in a situation that's going to be incredibly physically demanding but you're doing so voluntarily right that requires a special set of skills that are learnable and i'm really looking forward to us uh getting having a conversation about that part of that of, of the sport yeah and you know just want to bring it back a notch for me as you're talking I always get more and more in my mind about what I want to be able to share but it's I think important to talk about what we were brought up on because I was taught no excuses in fact back then if you ever stopped while you were running I don't care if it was an easy run you were giving up like that was shame 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 walk of shame and things have changed so much. We know, we know these things now more again with high performance that, um, walking is one of the best things we can do at times, but getting to the the mental side of things, I kept building and building on that approach of, I'm just the toughest guy out here. And I did have some attributes that 
I almost didn't even let myself think about because no, I'm just tougher than you guys. Um, it's not that my VO2 is better. It's not that, and clearly I had more attributes than some others. And clearly that was a help, but I didn't want to even think about that, right? I'm just, I'm going to look at you and think I'm tougher than you. I'm going to beat you today because that hill over there is mine and not yours, right? And that worked for a long time, especially when you're a big fish in a small pond. And as a coach, I don't know if I've even ever told you this story. I, I might have, Bobby, but the reason why I first really got into magical running was because I had an athlete, his name was Hank Bingham, an incredible, incredible young man and worked so, so hard. And he was one of those guys that he became a captain on our team. And he was that kid that you just dream about. He, he never said anything inappropriate. He, he always showed up early. He did his movement <laughs> improvement before every practice. He was the perfect leader in, in every way. And he was finally at that point after three years of training so diligently, so hard that I knew he was ready to win. And we are talking about a backpack athlete in the beginning. And I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> this kid, I told him, today's, today's the day. I want you to take it, take the lead, go for at least a hundred meter lead after the mile. Okay. So this was a uh, cross country. And then I don't want you to take your, your foot off of the gas until nobody can see you anymore. Right. And in cross country, you know, you're taking turns and you're up and down. So that is very possible on the particular course we were on too. And he did that and he won by a significant margin and all the coaches were just scratching their heads because Hank had never done that before and I knew he was physically capable of doing it. Now that was just before regionals to qualify for state. So Hank all of a sudden walks into regionals and he's favored by a lot of people including me to maybe win but certainly qualify for state and I will tell you that he he didn't make it to state. Um, now he had a target on his back. People knew who he was and they went after him. They didn't let him go. And he didn't know how to handle that. And that was uh, in large part my fault. I did not prepare him. And I promised myself that day when he didn't make it to state, he was so crushed and I was crushed for him. And I promised him that day and myself as a coach, I said, I um, you know, I've, I, I have failed you here and we're going to work on this and we're going to get this part of your run readiness, your race readiness taken care of. But then you are sort of chasing a little bit. Um, in other words, we've got now just a few months so that you can be mentally ready for, you know, state and, and outdoor track, that sort of thing. And what I realized is that it does take time to really build. And that's where, from that point on, I thought, while we're bu building the physical, we're going to build the mental at the same time. And it, and it does take a period of time to really make those adjustments so that you really do believe to achieve. And you can say things like fast and free as me, but believing it's a whole nother story. I've heard you talk about this before, but I thought maybe we could finish this part of the conversation with that, Bobby. Oh, fantastic, Matt. No, I, I, I think really it it is about awareness and so that people don't panic and feel like they've missed the whole thing. You know, mental skills training doesn't take as much time as physical training by any stretch of the imagination, right? But your first step is awareness. What is your mindset? You know, if you understand your mindset and you have been in the sport, you know, a couple of years and so on, and so you know where you're performing, understanding your mindset says, okay, this is what I do that works. What can I find that that doesn't work, right? But I think the, the, the overriding message in a short conversation like this is, is that a lot of these skills are learnable, but you can't learn anything until you become aware, right? It's like with any situation in life, right? You need to understand the mechanism you need to understand how it works 
And then you can start to see, okay, are there interventions and are there things that I can work on that I can and improve on, right? And a lot of what we've been saying now is nicely encapsulated by that model is, is that the way forward is working towards and believing there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that we don't know. And that's where the forward motion is going to be required, right? So the minute you say, okay, I know, I know, I know, you're dead in the water, right? It's just like, okay, I don't really know how I function mentally. And then have some sympathy for your coach, because if you don't know, he's not going to know or she's not going to know when you walk out on that start line, right? You know, there's a great little story recently. Nikki Hiltz uh, ran a 1500 in Europe. I'm not sure which, uh, which country she ran in, but... She was. She just ran a three uh, k and a five k. So she paced a three k. I think she went through three k and nine oh nine, and then let the race continue. And then they asked her at the last minute, "Will you pace the fifteen hundred for us as well?" And she said, "Look, I'll pace the fifteen hundred under one condition for you guys, um, is that I'm going to stay in the race. I'll I'll get you guys to thousand or twelve hundred, whatever the agreement was, but I'm going to stay in the race, right?" And Knowing that she'd run a 3K, all expectations are gone. She's a very, very fast 1,500-meter runner, right? She rabbited the race at 1,200. She just went and started opening up the gap, right, and ended up running, I think, 407 for the 1,500, winning the 1,500, and then telling her fan base on social media, don't don't hate on me. I, I made sure that I could finish the race as well, right? So, and she said it'll probably be the first and the last time that she runs a race like that, start to finish in the lead, because that's not her style at all. She's a tremendous kicker. So, uh, you know, just an example of how she went out there, uh, basically wasn't really requiring a physical, her physical skill, you know, as much as it was her mental skill, having fun with it and then winning the race. Yeah, I'm taking mental notes too, because the, all these things that you bring up, we should have a whole podcast on how we do approach the mental in our daily training and uh, the different scenarios that we use to prepare ourselves so we are ready for the unexpected and we're ready for, uh, I think of it personally as it's um, not a threat, right? It's it's a competition, right? So it's that, um, it's that view of, I'm seeing you, I'm seeing that you are ready to go today and I have an opportunity to get the best out of myself because you are my competition and you're not a threat. And so uh, preparing for that and being ready for those situations and taking advantage of the best that we can get out of ourselves and seeing our competition as that opportunity. So I think that's a, that's a fun podcast that we should have soon, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so we do this every week, right? We get so excited about what we're talking about. We talk about the head, we talk about contents, we talk contents of the brain, we talk about thoughts, we talk about that whole process, feelings to emotions, to thoughts, to choices, to choosing, to planning, to executing, right? And um, uh, so let's get to the actual physical component of the head, right? So I think that a good place to start is is realizing that the head is, over 8% of your body weight, right? And it's sitting right on top and it plays no propulsion role, right? It plays no, uh, but it, it it is the seat of the central governor. That's where the central governor, li- you know, lives and, and decides and interprets homeostatic responses. Uh, but we also, if you look at, at the weight of the head and the importance of the head to the overall uh, human body in terms of it protecting the brain and stuff like that, you can often see by how somebody holds their head what's going on for them mentally and emotionally as well, right? So very big, big little brick right on top of, of the body that is actually a leader, right? You'd think, okay, we started with the big toe, but but head positioning is an incredibly good diagnostic tool and it's an incredibly easy unit to utilize for advantage or disadvantage, right? So how many times do we look at head position and we immediately go down, okay, what's going on cervically? What's going on with the torso? Have they popped the top? 
and the heads following that. So there's there's a lot to to realize there. I mean, the, the, the head plays a primary role in posture setting and posture determination, right? So everything flows from that head position. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the head, I think of Jerry Maguire. You remember that little kid? The human head weighs... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> always cracks me up. But when it comes to the head, uh, like you said, we can tell a lot by their head position in the first place. Looking at some some simple variables about posture and how we do emphasize or why we do emphasize posture in our training, let that posture flow out of you. When we have that head forward, all that good training um, really leaks out, right? And so we um, we've we've come to really respect, I think, a little bit more. I say myself how important it is that we we recognize how we are centering ourselves with our head and how we find that position. But again, because I don't like to use these these terms like stuck, but you're like stuck in this position, but because we have the lifestyles we do and because we do tend to do a lot of sitting, I, I do believe that we are very robust though. So where I don't completely get on board when it comes to posture and a forward head and saying, well, I have a desk job, so I'm just going to be stuck here. The movements that we can do are very robust. And they are, I think, in small doses and micro doses, extremely effective. So if you have a desk job, don't think that it's the end of the world because sitting is not the new smoking, in my opinion. It is something that we just have to be aware of. So I'll, I'll finish with that part, let you keep going. But I just wanted to get that out because I'd say most people that we start working with do have to work on that head position. Uh, but it's, it's not something that um, lingers if we're able to just get some good protocol. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to carry your head around if it's in the wrong position because it's not balanced. But let's just go through where where that head should be. So as a simple rule of thumb, and we spoke about it, uh, I think, a week or two weeks ago, we spoke about this concept of running tall. We still want to run tall, all right? But we're always going to think about center of mass, and we need to think dynamically, right? So if, if, if a runner is in a good posture, right, so then that would mean that their head and their shoulders would be slightly ahead of their hips and their hips would be a slightly ahead of their knees and and their knees would be slightly ahead of their ankles, right? So we're looking at that line. So that static alignment that you look at from the side, all right, that the that the malleolus goes through the center of the knee, center of the knee goes through the, the trochanter right on the pelvis, and then that goes through the middle of the chest and that goes through the middle of the shoulder, and then that goes through the middle of the ear, all right? Now, all you do is you say that's vertical to the surface. So dynamic posture is dependent on velocity, right? So you can lean more the faster you go. But this forward lean then has everything still aligned, but in a line that's slightly forward, all right? So now the the, the line that goes through the ear through the shoulder, through the hip, through the knee, through the ankle, into the ground, is not vertical, but it's straight. It's leaning slightly forward. That That's what we talk about with dynamic posture. So the minute musculature starts to fail or fatigue starts to get in, then what you're looking for is that jawline that should be pointing sort of, you know, 40 feet in front of you, depending on, on, on your posture and your speed. That jawline, all right, um, should still be matching up with your shoulders. It's when your cervical spine starts to arch or extend and move back from your shoulder line when we start having having those problems, right? The other one is, is if you're using eye line as a guide and if you think about it in balance and in coordination and so on, that 60% of that balance and coordination comes from visual awareness, spatial awareness, Right. And remember that vestibular system sits in the brain, right? And and it's it's between your ears and it's a fluid-based system, right? So we, how you move your head around very much impacts your balance and, and your coordination. And as a result, 
when it comes to endurance sports, it impacts your economy, right? Because if you're starting to to fight to hold balance, your your economy goes goes down, right? You become less economical. So you know, in, in this slide that I prepared for this, I've got a a, a photograph, a still from from uh, from a video of both Flora Duffy, the the Tokyo Olympic champion in the triathlon, and the 2016 champion uh, Gwen Jorgensen, and Flora has. Uh, a more compact build. She's she's not as tall as Gwen is, so Gwen tends to run a little bit more upright. All right, and Flores has got more of a dynamic lean when she runs. But both of them, you can see that their eyes look straight out of their heads. And if they were looking straight out of their heads and they'd lost their head position, they would be looking over the horizon, right? They're looking above that, and their dynamic posture would have gone, right? But both of them are clearly looking at a spot, dynamic spot, about, you know, 40, you know, 40, 35 feet in front of them, which is determined that if they were looking straight out of their skull, all right, and then they had that dynamic lean, their eyes would come down. So I love that little drill where I have athletes put their arms out while they're standing still at a 90 degree angle to their chest and then fall forward don't move anything but fall forward. And when they take that first step, where are their hands pointing? And that's where they should be looking, all right? If they now push their eyes down separately in the socket so that they need to look down because they take in an instruction, it's not altering their posture. So it's, it's a very integrated movement when you're running, right? And also remember the a lot of runners oscillate their heads either left to right or up and down. And then a lot of athletes also hold their head slightly at an angle to the left or the, to the right. And for them to understand, that's probably coming from the pelvis or somewhere along the spine, lumbar spine, even cervical spine. I mean, even thoracic spine, T-spine, right? Or the cervical spine, depending on, on structure, balance, strength, conditioning. And that's what I wanted you to talk about because... Sometimes that shoulder up thing is a tension thing, but sometimes it's also unawareness or fatiguing of, of uh, uh, head support musculature now requiring the trapezius to hold up the shoulders as opposed to, you know, a, a more relaxed look. Yeah. And so both with Flora and Gwen, I had the opportunity to, to work with both of them. And I can speak on, for example, with Gwen, you, you mentioned she's a little bit taller, and that was one of the things that we we saw early in her assessments. When I look at the push-up, so you can record yourself, video yourself doing a push-up, and it's not until you see that video where you might be surprised that your head is leading and you're protruding and you're you're leading with that chin down to the ground every single push-up you do, and Actually, where I really see that is on the way down, especially. Okay, on the way up, it, if if you got to work on some other components, it's it tends to be the lower back breaks, right? But that that down eccentric coming down to the floor, we see that that chin goes forward, and so with Gwen, that's something that was going on. So proprioception, you know, our ability are to have our uh, our awareness in space there is two-thirds sight, right, uh, roughly. And so one of the things that we can do is, well, first of all, I like to do hand-release push-ups. And so that way you are going to go all the way down to the ground anyways. But what you are looking for is the ground when you do a push-up. So by getting your head closer to the ground first, you're like, oh, I'm there, right? So that becomes a habit. Like, oh, this is this is how I do push-ups because... I can find the ground earlier if I lead with my chin because now my eyesight is closer to the ground. So with cases like that, we just worked quite a bit on closing our eyes and doing it in uh, a full range but manageable position. So in other words, we worked with eyes closed but at an incline with our push-up and getting that awareness, right? And of, and of course, again, you know, videoing, looking at the result of that and getting really used to that postural awareness, right? Um, now, with other athletes, I feel that you have a bit of a hack that works pretty well too. Um, hack's a bad word, but 
if we have them shrug their shoulders up and in other words, exhaust their traps and create as much tension as they can and then relax, we tend to have a better head position again as well. And um, I've even um, know that you have worked with some athletes where during their run, you'll tell them to shrug while they're running. So, um, you know, that's for the strength component side of things. That's an example of what I look to work on because so much of it is based off of your proprioception, your eyesight. So it's not just the push-up, but when you graduate doing more athlete anchor kind of work on your feet, balancing on a single leg and uh, rotating and reaching a dumbbell over your head or even better, a kettlebell with the kettle up and grabbing onto the horn for stability. Uh, again, getting to the point where we can feel the difference if our head starts protruding forward, we're going to lose that balance. And so drills like that really help significantly for our athletes. I remember with, with Flora, that was a big thing we worked on is overhead walks and just really getting that overall awareness so that we didn't have that, uh, that forward head. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fantastic. No, there's, there's so much I want to say on this, but on a quick note there, you were talking about the hand release push-ups, and you know, I've said before that I, I can't do those hand release push-ups anymore because, you know, my, my wrists are not, I don't know if it's arthritis or what it is, but my wrists won't allow that anymore, right? And so I've been doing it with my fists. And then I remembered yesterday while I was doing doing my push-ups, I, w- I remembered um, that seeing, often seeing uh, DEXA scans of athletes and that the triathletes have these low bone density in their upper body, you know, and so that's probably one of the reasons why they so easily break their clavicles and so on when they fall on the bike. But then I, I thought, okay, I'm always talking about these these push-ups where you, you know, you leave the ground, those, you know, and then you come back down. That, that'll help improve your density. But I've got a nice thick mat that I'm doing those push-ups on. So I'm going up and it's my fists, all right? So when I do that hand release, I smash into the mat before I push myself up and thinking... Good for my bone density, you know, and my shoulders. Yeah, yeah. But either way, to 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 get back to to what you were saying, right? So the big thing with getting the head out of position, right? And that that shrugging thing, instead of calling it a hack, it's a it's another thing in your toolbox, right? You're doing an assessment. People don't realize when their shoulders are partially elevated, right? Uh, they don't realize that. And so that that movement is is a great movement in your toolbox. And I used with a lot of athletes just yesterday. I was continually uh, during a workout that I was doing with uh, uh, with Victoria Lopez uh, getting ready to race in, in Alcatraz this weekend um, and with long-term view of her getting ready to race in, in Montreal. Um, she trains with her husband and Danilo, uh, Pimental, her husband, tends to run with his shoulders like super high. And so over and over again, I'm saying shoulder cue, and then he'd lift his, his shoulders up and then release them, right? But what, what becomes very important with head position in that regard, when you pull your shoulders up, you push your head back, right? So you've got to see, realize how that, that connection is there. And then also, when you pull those shoulders up, you start to vertically oscillate more. And that's massively impacting your your mechanical efficiency, right? As soon as your head's back and your shoulders start coming up, you're moving your center of mass up and back, right? Because your head's heavy. So it's when it goes back, it's pulling your shoulders back. It's causing you to arch your lumbar spine, you know, and now you're losing that, that mechanical advantage, right? So uh, um, and while you were talking, it just reminded me of how blown away and how my band is lying right here next to the desk. How important that loaded mobility exercise is with the band, you know, that I've seen you introduce it to athletes and those athletes instantly say, it feels brilliant, you know? So maybe just say a little bit more about that, Matt. Yeah, so there's, I kind of refer to it as neuromuscular re-education, right? But you are taking a band, we have this in our run form program for a reason because we are just essentially restoring some mobility in the cervical, but by taking a band and putting it uh, in the back of our neck so it's up by your occipitals and where that um, that bottom of your your head and your neck meet there, we just kind of pull on the band um, so that it's it's going behind our neck and then we are 
grabbing onto that band with both hands and we pull right. So we have a little bit of tension there. And then we are now breathing out nice and strong as we're doing that and rotating our neck. We're starting to, again, look at some re-education there on this is actually helping to de-emphasize some of the, we'll use the word, you know, being tight, right? But some of some of that over-involvement or that overactivity of the traps and, and letting the neck muscles do their job so that your head can be on a swivel a little bit more. And so, you know, that's such a simple movement, although I feel like uh, a lot of people just bypass it because it's so simple. And sometimes the simplest things work. And like you said, when people do that movement, they, they just think, oh, wow, that feels so good. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely give credit where credit's due. That's that movement I got from Jeff Cavalier, an old video he did years ago. And I've been using it ever since, especially again, you know, when you've been working really hard, let's say that you're a desk jockey, or if you've been, let's say you're a triathlete and your breathing side is your right side and you're dominantly breathing through that right side, these type of movements are beautiful for just restoring that movement and making those better neuromuscular connections. Um, so, you know, that's, again, I think a, a really good tool uh, that we can use. I like that word, Bobby. And it's just takes two minutes. It's not a long time. So that's where I say we can be very robust no matter what our, our daily job is, or if we feel like we've been in these positions stuck in these positions for even years. The the fact is that we may have, say, a few hours of a window where we can help to restore that position. And then now let's go out there and actually load ourselves through, you know, through our running or with our movements that we're doing in the gym. And everything from there is setting the table up so you are getting that much better about your awareness. And um, I think going back to the the conversation about just your eyesight and how much we use that. If I were to look at one more thing, it would be do more things backwards, right? Because if you have that forward head, right, but you're going backwards, you'll you'll start to get that chin and chest. Like you want to get that chin and chest more in line because it just it doesn't mm-hmm. feel right to go backwards with your head forward. Yeah, and and you know when when, when your head is like that, you know it limits it limits your stride length out the back. So it's it's fantastic you know to to say that i i i so often forget about backward stuff but i try and do a little bit of backward work myself every single day and i'll often you know i like backward pogos backward marches backward jogging backward walking and it's a great way to when you're doing drills it's a great way to recover between drills right it's just backwards 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 and even even my runners that utilize swimming as a as a conditioning activity backstroke 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 it just unloads things so beautifully it's a contralateral motion uh it's a spinal extender you know people always sleep with a flexed spine uh, you know and so it it really is an opportunity to do that right and you know me right i'm really fond of the hierarchy conversation right so if you're trying to condition your feet and you're trying to condition your leg musculature and your tendons and your connective tissue for duration, you're going out on an easy run, but you're trying to push the pace because you see some connection in your own brain with your easy run pace and your racing pace, the hierarchy shifts, right? You don't get the same level of tendon conditioning and foot conditioning and stuff like that. And the research on breathing is amazing, right? So breathing is secondary to to effort and demands of, of oxygen, uh, consumption and remember, breathing primarily is not to oxygenate. Breathing primarily is to shift to get rid of carbon dioxide. Right, that's that's the primary reason in endurance sports why we breathe so hard. Right, but what hierarchically happens there? It's all about effort and fatigue and all those sort of things and speed. We forget that the research has shown that the breathing musculature gets behind that the limiter then becomes your inability to fill and empty your chest because you're getting fatigue in your uh, in, in your breathing musculature, 
all right? And then that starts to limit your performance. And in the same way, how you hold your head and your head awareness will is, is terrible when you're running hard, right? It's terrible. And so knowing that you need to literally work on your breathing musculature with restricted breathing and various exercises like that, you know, uh, doming the diaphragm, all of those things, right? Um, also realizing that as endurance athletes, especially triathletes, we don't do nearly enough work to condition the cervical spinal support musculature and the head support musculature. Yeah. Again, you, you brought up so many good points. I would tell people that we said we would, uh, finish with the nose is kind of a joke, but it is, it is a real, uh, uh, thing where we can look at how we are breathing through our nose and that's the mulligan. And I would say this is probably one of the biggest boulders that we can move for an athlete that I think we always almost see with, with athletes, especially when you're talking about warmups and uh, easy work or easy pacing. We can work a lot more on nasal breathing, and that is automatically going to set your overall kinetics more efficiently. So that's always a mulligan. And when I say that, like I had a deviated septum that was pretty, it was obstructed enough that up until when I had surgery for it, I really couldn't breathe through my nose comfortably. So I do like to give the option to people that if that's the case with you, just take the, your tongue, put it to tip of your tongue to the roof of your mouth, right? And breathe in and out that way, because you'll notice that you can still get that nasal breathing in. Okay. But you don't have your jaw slacked. You don't have your jaw dropped open. You're still able to do things in more of that rest and digest state. But more of the movements, especially like I say, in protocol and warmups and walking, I even do it on my easy runs. It does take adjusting, but all through the nose or what I call tongue in cheek is that last part I was talking about. And so, you know, that's, that, that's an important factor to just kind of consider because if you don't, if, if you've not tried it before, just breathe in nice and deeply just with your nose and see what happens to your position to your head, right? It's, it's, um, it, you will feel and you will see if you're looking in the mirror that automatically you actually restore better overall positioning. So all these breathing muscles we're talking about, it gets really confusing for people. And it used to be that in the training world, they talked a lot about how we can work on the transverse abdominis, that inner weight belt, and how we can do that with our breathing. And it was honestly really difficult and very confusing. And so what I started to look at more is, well, first of all, the science tells us now that we can't really isolate that anyways. But when we are, especially in our, um, our positions athletically, or when we're lifting, when we're doing things like this, um, when we're going through our dynamic mobility drills, all these type of things, if we just focus on the nasal breathing, that cleans up so much for us that we are actually now engaging and strengthening our breathing muscles. So think of that nasal breathing as your opportunity to strengthen your breathing muscles. Oh, brilliant, Matt. Brilliant. Yeah, that's exactly what we need. Uh, do me a quick favor. I've got a couple of things to say about what you've just said, but do me a quick favor. Explain to people what you mean by a mulligan, because I, I know mulligan is a golf term, right? Where you get a free shot, right? It, it doesn't count. So you get like a breakfast ball or a mulligan where you, you get a shot and it won't, it won't count. The previous shot won't count. You get to do it over. Right. Yeah. So a mulligan is like, you can't mess it up, right? It's you, you're going to improve. And so that's a mulligan movement is where I know as soon as I tell somebody who's say lifting their chest up every time they inhale and you can see their chest lifting, chest lifting. And I say, okay, now only breathe through your nose. And you can see that that, that chest may start to lift a little bit, but it's only going to go so far because we're now having that longer passage through our nasal cavity and down the chain, which requires more activation of those uh, breathing muscles for inhalation. 
And same thing with expiration, right? So we're, we're using both inhalation, exhalation muscles more effectively, especially when you're talking about internal and external rotation of your ribs. So for example, when you are breathing through your mouth more dominantly with your chin forward, what's going to happen is those, uh, we talk about popping the top, right? But your chest will lift a lot more and your ribs will externally rotate more and oftentimes too, too much, right? Versus if you are using that nasal breathing, now we are automatically in that capacity where these muscles are working more optimally. So you can get better at it the more efficient you get at your nasal breathing, but certainly you will improve and it is uh, noticeable to me. Uh, may not be to somebody who doesn't look at that every day, but even for yourself, if you do some video of you performing a movement with your jaw open and notice your chest lifting or popping your top where you are externally rotating those ribs too much and not getting enough of your internal rotation in your ribs when you exhale, and then you use your nasal breathing, you should see that you automatically have overall form improvements, so much so that sometimes I've even had athletes that have, say, joint pain in their shoulder and when they're trying to reach overhead, but we use that breathing and now they're reaching over their head without the joint pain or less joint pain and they get more range just by changing their breathing pattern, right? To, to that nasal breathing. And, you know, lastly, I'll say that because we work on this so much with our, you know, our easier paces or our DMDs, et cetera, that is a, the bigger part of the volume in our overall training. And of course, if we add in now, like I'm walking from my car to the grocery store and I'm just going to use nasal breathing. Uh, now we are doing this so much and so often Then when it is time to drop your jaw and go for it, you have, first of all, more uh, adrenaline because you haven't dumped your adrenaline by constantly opening your jaw. And so in other words, you know, when we have that rest and digest that parasympathetic state, when we're breathing with our nose more versus flight or fight, when we do drop the jaw, it's more, again, I like to use the word visceral, right? But it's more automatic. And because those muscles have been doing their job most of the time, now they're going to contribute the way they should when you're really trying to uh, put your maximum effort into something. Yeah, as we get older, we've got to realize that that neck is starting to flatten, right? And we need to work harder and harder on keeping that curvature in the neck. And that determines that. And I think there's some research available too that when you breathe through your nose, you align your trachea better, yeah. you know? And you don't have to deal as much with, with, that, with that glottis that you have when, you, when, you're, when you're mouth breathing as well. Now, obviously, you know, when you're trying to get rid of as much CO2 as possible, you're going to have to breathe through both, right? There's some interesting research done by uh, George Dallum um, on, on nasal breathing and how far you can go with it if you, if you develop it slowly. But it's a little bit like, like barefoot running too, right? It takes a very long time to condition to that. But as you say, when, you, when you're passive or when, you, when you're doing your strength work or when you're you know, sitting in front of the computer and you're working, all of those things, that's the time to train yourself to do that, right? Right. Um, so just, just to finish off, uh, a drill that I really like is the old howdy-doody drill, right? When you stand up against the wall and you try and pull your chin back and flatten your neck towards the wall, right? Uh, just so people have an awareness of that. And if you want to see what's happening with your neck when, you, when you're running, ha get a video of yourself early on in a run session or in a race and, and pay attention to your neck and look what happens later on and you will see the effects of conditioning and working on your neck and getting your neck into an optimized position because early on you your neck should be in a pretty good position and then later on you can see changes to that and and as i say it's really really important to remember that that your your head position is is really a leader to your entire posture if you get your head sorted out a lot of good things happen down the chain yeah yeah no absolutely and you know I'll finish with this part here, but every time I finish with a run, and this, this is any run I do, I will take five minutes of fun, I call it, to 
just breathe through my nose and walk. And what I work on is just with nasal breathing, I will breathe in for four steps and I will breathe out for five steps. And I just alternate that. And so essentially what that means is I am working a little bit more on that expiration, on that internal rotation of my ribs. And that is going to really help to restore things. But because I, you can build up, you can start with something like three, two. Um, but what I've really noticed is that once I could get to that five out, four in nasal breathing only, it's also been a tremendous tool for recovery, right? So the posture conversation we've had, and then also just resetting your system and saying, we are doing a purposeful cool down, because I think that's a huge area too, where people really just, they think they've cooled down, but they really haven't. And it does take them longer to recover. And so that's, again, a little tool, we'll use the word tool, right? A, a tool that I really believe in, and I have noticed much better recovery by doing that afterwards. And uh, some people might have heard of things like box breathing. That's a great tool. I just like to do things where I'm actually on my feet and I'm moving. And so because I'm moving and because I'm working really hard to get that 5-4, in other words, when I say working hard, through my nasal breathing, I cannot get ahead of myself. And again, it brings a lot of attention to those little guys, those breathing muscles that need that cool down after you've been, you know, working really hard, especially. So, you know, just a suggestion there for people to think about how they can improve their cool down and have more purposeful progress in their practice. Yep. Yep. When, when I'm walking and I'm going slower than 10 10 minutes per kilometer, I'm finding I can go five, five in, six out. And then when I start going a little bit faster, then, you know, then I'm four in, five out. And then sometimes if I really hoof it, I have to go, you know, uh, three in, four out or something like that. Anyway, um, so that was great, Matt. Oh, I think we found a lot more to do with the head than, than we even thought possible, right? So uh, uh, that was that was quite exciting. So we've got to the end of of you know, what is good run form in terms of moving from the great toe to the head. So in future now, our, our next kind of series that we're working on will be the mechanical components of running as as measured by, say, a power meter. And then what kind of activities can you do to improve those things? So an understanding of what are those factors that, that the scientists are measuring that makes good mechanical run form. And then what, what are the activities out of our world of run form that can improve that those components and, and make you a more mechanically efficient runner. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you, Bobby. This has been fun and look forward to the next series with you. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was, that was awesome. Yeah.